On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Hold Your Fire. Welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined on a lean slate by my very good friend Ken Gregory as we attempt to cover Russia's Hold Your Fire. Here we are with a uh, sort of a lean operation tonight, the Progressive Palaver. It's just you and me, Ken. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Joe. We've, we've done this before. We did actually a really good job. Um, episode 9, which was Marillion's Less is More, actually uh, performs fairly well in the, in the catalog of, of Palaver episodes. So I feel confident that tonight you and I can, uh, can handle the task of covering Rush's Hold your fire. You know, in the in the Palaver model, it turned out that, that, that you were the host. You, you were, as it were, a uh, David Letterman character or a, a Howard Stern character, <laughs> and, and 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 you know, possibly uh, Paul. You know, may have been your Robin Quivers, <laughs> so to speak. And 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 I I took pride and comfort. In being the Artie Lang type jokester in the back, and then you, you enlist me a second fiddle with just a couple hours' notice, and I bristle. <laughs> I'm not necessarily ready for this task. I, I would rather be the uh, comic relief. Well, I'm. I have great confidence in you, Ken. Wonderful, wonderful. Yes, we we, we miss Paul. We we miss Tom. We miss Colby. Uh, Jay, to the extent that he's uh, jumping in once in a while, and uh, 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 we've done our best to get their comments on text messaging. Yeah, we really, uh, and you know, everyone had other things that was keeping them otherwise engaged, and so you and I made the decision to sort of uh, brave on ahead. But we, you did reach out to them on the text stream, and they responded uh, quite uh, quite emphatically. There, there was a lot of information sort of flowing in there. At the end of the day today, we have so, a big SMS mailbag and we will dip into that mailbag. Yeah, we will. So let's let's quickly here set the stage. Rush Hold Your Fire <laughs> was released on September 8th of 1987, still produced by Rush and Peter Collins. This was the second album produced by Peter Collins before they switched to Rupert Hine and then switched back to Peter Collins. It was released, as always, on Anthem and Mercury, featuring Getty, Alex, and Neil. Rush Hold Your Fire is the 12th studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released on September 8, 1987. It was recorded at the Manor Studio in Oxfordshire, Ridge Farm Studio in Surrey, Air Studios in Montserrat, and McClear Place in Toronto. That's a lot of different studios. Much to say about it, yes. Yeah. Hold Your Fire was the last Rush studio album released outside Canada by Polygram Mercury. Rush continued to explore new songwriting territory in Hold Your Fire. 
Till Tuesday, bassist and vocalist Amy Mann contributed vocals to Open Secrets and Time Stand Still, appearing in the, I can't even pronounce it, directed video for the latter. Um, yeah, it's, there's a spectacular name. I recommend you go to the Wikipedia page and uh, check that out for yourself. The album was not as commercially successful as most of the band's releases in the 1980s, only peaking at number 13 on the Billboard charts, the lowest debut for a Rush album since Hemispheres. However, it did eventually go gold. That sort of sets the stage in, in my preparation. You know, and, and I've got sort of a storied history with this album. We had talked before about how Grace Under Pressure was, was my gateway, and uh, we had pretty much determined that I had received Grace Under Pressure probably as a birthday gift for my 14th birthday. Indeed. And somehow I ended up skipping over Power Windows, but Hold Your Fire as, a, as an LP has been in my collection presumably since the time it came out. I vividly remember not remembering it, not playing it a whole bunch, not really thinking about it. For whatever reason, it was not Grace Under Pressure. Therefore, I wasn't terribly interested. And then I went away to college, and I met some people who were into Rush. And, you know, I remember when, when Presto came out, and there was the whole – I remember it vividly because I said some snarky, stupid-ass comment – along the lines of, oh, Alex Lifeson's back when I heard Presto. Now, so I had fallen into the same I had fallen into the same trap that we were we were discussing last week in terms of my my preconceived notion of this was as, you know, a a synth laden, you know, new wave record or something to that effect. And I honestly just never really gave it much thought. I remember when we met Colby and Colby was super duper into it. And, and I, you know, have vague recollections of just sort of dismissing him out of hand. Why would you like that album? And like I said, after Presto came out, I sort of sank my teeth into that. And I, I honestly never even thought about Hold Your Fire. And so, you know, I, I, I even... I didn't listen to it in preparation for this for quite a long time. Um, you know, as I listened to one Rush record for for this segment, you know, I've, I've always tried to listen to maybe one or two um, in front of that or beyond that, just to kind of get a, a feel for the overall context and whatnot. And, and I kind of stayed away from Hold Your Fire. Um, and it was in the middle of all of this that I bought my my turntable and i was like well here's my opportunity to listen to to hold your fire because i still had the the vinyl now i, I have the cd i could have listened to it any time <laughs> i just hadn't just then but 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 the turntable was enough of of a uh, of a of a reason i put it on and i was stunned by how much i really really liked this record and, and it was not at all what i remembered it being now, by this point, I had started to formulate my no synth era sort of concept, and listening to this fit in perfectly with that. And I'd always, I'd always sort of imagined a a hard stop between Hold Your Fire and Presto, which obviously we'll get to Presto later. But much like Signals, I find 
the 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 genetic trail from from grace through power windows hold your fire and into presto actually is pretty easy to follow which surprised me oh absolutely and i've made the crass comment that power windows was merely rehearsal for hold your fire you have made that comment i believe it upsets some people indeed <laughs> there, there are there are huge fans of power windows and I just gravitated towards Hold Your Fire. There, there, there's a reason for that. Um, what I, is that? Ben? I bookended Paul's experience and, and, and your experience. Um, I was an early adapter, shall we say, making a technology reference. I, 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 I just, you know, a little bit ahead of the curve with... Uh, you know, really getting into, I think, Exit Stage Left was my big one. But I had that Mel Bay Rush songbook and my nylon string acoustic guitar trying to sound like Alex Lifeson miserably, but consistently. And I, I just loved the whole vibe. And I, I preached the miraculous Xanadu to Paul. I couldn't get enough of that. Loved it. And then I went away and did other things. And then as folks got into, uh, you know, whatever subdivisions and big money, I was kind of like lukewarm. And for some reason, I got really big into Hold Your Fire. And it was not even in 1987 when it was released, because that would have been our senior year of high school. And we were... We were consumed with all kinds of media at that time. We had, if I could um, segue to my usual, you know, albums of the era. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, I remember seeing you 2 like three times. So this is the Joshua Tree in 1987. Appetite for Destruction came out. Hysteria, 1987. It, it's just a really intense period. Uh, bad for Michael Jackson. Kiss me, kiss me, kiss me. I don't know if you knew about The Cure in real time back then, but there was just I, a I, lot. I, I got into The Cure just past Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. I was on board by the time, time Disintegration came out, but I was not on board when Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me came out. Sure, sure. Yep. Okay. There was competition, and we've commented on how the Prague era gets whittled down to the just a few artists as the the pop and the metal really blossoms through this period for whatever reason i uh i think i made the comment in the palaver that i saw the hold your fire tour i must correct that huge correction um <laughs> i saw the presto tour Okay. which was significantly later. That, that, that's um, uh, two years later. Um, but, but I did see all the best tracks from Hold Your Fire performed live. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and that's one of the, the things that, that sort of upsets me about this, the fact that, you know, I didn't see Rush until, what was it, 2012, 2013, something like that really one of their last, if not their last, the last tour. 
And it was one of those things where I, I, I had no real reason for having never seen them. And, and and I regretted it, so I fixed it. And I regret not seeing them earlier even more. Understood. Understood. Yeah, I mean, besides the washing machines on the stage, and we've talked before about Eddie's <laughs> vocal capacity. <laughs> and, and, you know, Ken, you obviously were always a little bit ahead of the curve on a lot of this stuff. So the fact, I guess I'm not at all surprised to hear that Hold Your Fire um, sort of, of caught your, your attention before the rest of us. It was on cassette, of all things. And while studying in my first year of college, I just had that, like a go-to thing. It was just my, you know, just needed to hear something in the background, and that was it. Um, yeah, and, and, and you know, do, doing the, uh, you know, studying math and science in college and knowing all the music geeks and, you know, sharing your guitars and your stories, you know, everybody gravitates towards Rush. And it's like, yep, you know. If you're going to find some common ground with a dude in college from another state who's into music and math and science, yep, it's going to be a rush. Well, and I, I was explaining I had a similar experience when well, I remember when Presto, Presto came out and, you know, a friend of mine who lived in the dorm, you know, in the next building over, he had it. We went into his room and he put it in and we we're all just like, oh, wow. And, you know, we said all the things we said. One of the things that I've I found funny, and, and well, you've listened to Leave That Thing Alone as well. Um, the one guy, Collision, oh. always talks about growing up in Denver and older men in denim jackets wanting to talk to him about Rush, sort of out of the blue. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I have never that. had that experience, <laughs> but he seems pretty uh, pretty adamant that that. that happened to him a lot so maybe it was a denver thing i'm not quite sure <laughs> really what to do with that um but but yeah, rush does seem to bring people together well you know you, and, and real real quick you mentioned leave that thing alone you know we we, we are breaking new territory we, we we are gone going where that podcast could not go we broke through the wall we did and and i've i've been meaning now, obviously, these these get released weeks after we actually record them. But I have been desperately meaning to email those fellows and beg them to continue leave that thing alone um, because I would just I'd love to hear them. I'd love to hear them go through this section of albums. <laughs> my my fear is Collision's head may explode off his shoulders, but I'm not sure. But yeah. I, I, at some point, I'm going to send that email. So, um, you know, on the off chance that uh, that Jay and Chris are, are listening, um, please, 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 please continue. I know it may be painful <laughs> for you, but I, I love it. Oh, <laughs> uh, I hope they don't write back, leave our podcast alone. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, All right. Well, let's see. Let's see what we can do on that front. Let's Make it a fundraiser. Yeah, whatever, whatever it takes. Let's let's talk quickly about um, the artwork associated with this before we get into the music. I find this al this album cover to be intriguing to me. Um, 
you know, the, the, the three spheres and, and just a lot of red going on. And we know there's sort of a fascination with red in lyrics through this, this section as well. And they, they hold, cause again, I've got the vinyl. They, they hold the, 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 the clever joke picture for the inside um, on the inside dust cover is the picture of the guy juggling the balls of flame, i.e. hold your fire. And I don't know if maybe these three spheres are supposed to mimic that juggling or, um, but I, I, I love just the, the cleanness of this album cover. And if they had to put the, the little nudge, nudge, wink, wink picture on here, I'm glad they, they put it on the inside. Really? Because it was too corny? Yeah, I, I've kind of been over their 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 corny um, album covers for a while. I didn't really care for Signals. I didn't much care for Power Windows. Um, you know, Moving Pictures was good, but I think it was it was a couple levels too clever. Just that's my own gig, you know. It doesn't. It, it has no impact either way. But I do, like I said, I do like sort of the, the cleanness of this. Um, I oh, think it um, I, I just thought I'd reiterate some of Neil's liner notes from the concerts, those beautiful tour booklets that he's famous for. Um, he did get into hold your fire metaphors, including soldiers in Paris following some um, bombings or terrorist activity. Um, he mentioned being just as afraid of the uh, soldiers with weapons as he was of the original threat being that close to them riding his bike. Um, so I, I believe it. I've, I've been in Paris and yeah, I don't. I don't remember if anything specific was going on at the time, but I do remember at all of the the touristy places, the Eiffel Tower, the Louvre, and everything else. There are there are soldiers carrying around machine guns, and you know, obviously, it's it's there for your protection and everything else. But it's unnerving to see that, um, you know, just out and about in in your normal day you're just, you're not used to seeing that kind of weaponry. Yes, sir. Uzi's on a street corner, sir. Uzi's on a street corner, indeed. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yep. Love it. Um, quick Marillion reference. Um, quick, well, yeah. You know, there, there are mantras everywhere. Now, Neil doesn't do the mantra. Not so much. Not so much. I mean, I, I suppose that would be as, as an arranger, uh, that would be Getty's interpretation. I suppose if, you know, there's repetition, that's probably Getty just repeating something that Neil did. Shall we get into the music? I was trying to think of another Hold Your Fire reference, but, you know, it's just, it's just something that, that he alludes to in many places during that, 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 that tour book it, it, it's it's like many neil themes many rush themes not being of one specific you know idea you can nail down but 
different floating ideas that all come together. So, right. Yes, yes, yes. We, well, we and, yeah. And and this was the this was the period where, you know, Neil seemed Neil and, and I guess by extension the band seemed to be interested in creating themes for their their albums. So. It, not surprising that he had a lot of these sort of thoughts on his mind, if that's where his brain was at the time. Sure. Yeah, let, let's start the music like you said, and we'll touch on those themes. So, Force 10. Great way to start an album, near as I can tell. Um, when asked what the title meant, Neil said, The Buford Scale, look it up. The Buford scale happens to be an empirical measure that relates wind speed to observed conditions at sea or on land. So he's talking about storms. I see. It was the last piece they wrote, and that's for certain, only with uh, a couple days prior to recording. Yes. He also says the song expresses ways to face barriers and urges people not to be afraid of failure one of our basic temperamental traits. So there are a couple different things going on um, with this, but I'm assuming the, the force 10 and the Buford scale has to do with extreme forces around you and then um, being able to, you know, sort of stand up in the face of those forces. It's jamming song. It, it really, like I said, in terms of opening up an album, it, it's really, really very solid. And here again, you know, it's, it, it's really very straightforward in terms of, you know, the, the standard rock trio. And, yeah. And I think, I think what really um, sets it apart or makes it a little bit different is, um, you know, Alex is super duper bright in his sound at this point. And I think that, you know, I, I made I made the comment before on the last episode, I believe, that I, I think that lends itself to a lot of this synth perception thing. Um, Alex's sound is is in the range that, you know, the the synths often are. And so while they can sort of float in and out and uh, sometimes occupy the same space, you end up you're left with with the perception that there's a lot more keyboards than there are. That's my thinking on all of this. Fair enough. And it was um, just endemic of the time. I mean, you could think of uh, the edge. So much was in a high range with clean, not meaty, not distorted. And Alex was influenced by the sounds of the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, even when you, again, when you go to Presto, it's the same sort of a thing, although they seem to have stripped all the uh, keyboards out of that. But again, we'll get we'll get there. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I I I just absolutely love love this song. I think it's it's a spectacular way, like I said, to to open up the album. Yeah, I I, I I'm wondering if it um, displaced. Turn the page. Turn turn the page has a good tempo and a lot of action, kind of. And it's weird because it's like Force Ten just kind of like overpowers a lot of this stuff. And it's almost like you, you kind of no longer need turn the page now. 
Yeah, yeah, that's that that is that is true, and it would be interesting, you know, given the fact that this song showed up late in the recording, you know, if if they if that's how somehow had an impact. Because I can't imagine that you would expect the song that you record last over a couple hours winds up being such a strong opener on the uh, the album, which moves us on to the big hit, Time Stands Still. It stands up for me over time, stands the test of time. It really, really does. Uh, I... You know, again, you, you can sort of create this impression in your head that, oh, this was the single and it had that that, you know, that girl singing on it. And, you know, it, it must be some sort of fluffy sellout, um, you know, super commercial record. But it it's really, really not. It, it it ages surprisingly well as a song. And I'm going to make the I'm going to make the observation that while we have lauded Rush on their ability to pick a single, and and I haven't been able to do enough enough research to sort of flesh this out, but they, by what I've seen, they did a horrible job creating videos. <laughs> I, I watched the, the video for, for Time Stand Still and it was painful absolutely awful to watch there's so much about it that is not good but what I find interesting about that and the song because you know everyone knows that Amy Mann sings on this song even sure. you know and and everyone remembers Amy Mann for two things: this and voices carry. That's it. They probably oh, remember. Well, I, I I I suppose. I mean, I'm a a, a fan. She's done other things that I I I, I know I know that she has. I'm just suggesting that in the greater you know audience collective knowledge. Amy Mann probably isn't given nearly the due that she deserves. Now, what I'm going to say, though, is, you know, her contribution in terms of this song is she has one line that she sings. And while she probably didn't sing it once and they dubbed it over and over, it, it could have been because it's not like she really, you know, goes out on a limb with it or anything else. But it has such an impact on the song. It, it is amazing how much she brings to the table by doing relatively so little, in my opinion. Um, I find it, uh, I find it stunning. And the video honestly was the same way. If you've taken the time to watch the video, and I don't know if you're watching it right I'm now. I'm watching look. it right now against my better judgment. <laughs> I told you it was terrible. Indeed. But, and, and Amy has nothing to do. She just sits there and sort of points a camera at nothing because there's nothing there and they're just zooming um, Alex and, and, and Getty all around the place and, and Neil kind of floats by every time and again. So she's, you know, she's, she's playing the role of, of, you know, looking at something that isn't there. And it has nothing to do with anything. And she also has a severely dated look. She is carrying the late 80s music queen 
look, but she she does it so well. She looks spectacular, and I find her to be by far the most compelling thing about that train wreck of a video. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, they're going for a collage effect here, but it's the same damn collage over and over again. With, with, with Amy Mann, I would just say um, uh, I, will, I will always hear a couple of her tunes in the back of my head. Uh, a recent one, relatively recent, is uh, Save Me. Uh, although that could be, no, that could be 99. It could be older than I think. Uh, <laughs> that happens easy, right? And 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 back in the eighties, it would have been coming up close. Was one that I, that I really liked. Um, but wherever she pops up, whoever she works with, um, she does good work. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, mm. um, does she appear on the next track as well? Uh, she. Open Secrets, yes, she is on the next track. That is correct. Yes, yes. They're not as not as prominent. Not not nearly as prominently, no. Um I, I recall in the Presto tour, um you know, they had some electronic video recreation uh during time standstill to bring her in. I don't know if they were doing that, you know, when you saw them. Uh, in 2014, whatnot, but uh, uh, I, I, I imagine that they always had the sample of her her singing. I believe they do. Uh, this shows up on Show of Hands, I believe, and they they do have a sample of Amy singing that. That's there's good. an interesting there's an interesting quote on Rush Vault by Alex about Amy Mann in this song. She was very nervous. I don't think she had done that sort of thing very often, especially with a band like us. We weren't necessarily playing the kind of music that she was into or listening to, but she liked the band. We made her feel relaxed very quickly, turning the whole session into a fun thing. So good for you guys. Oh, yeah. Everything they do is a fun thing. Well, yeah, and that, that clearly is the case, or it seems to be the case. I don't I don't know them enough to, to say that either way yeah 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 i'm confident saying that now watching enough videos watching them eat dinner together on youtube whatever it is that they do it's it's pretty much headed towards a joke at some point it, it yeah they, they really do seem to kind of enjoy themselves and and hanging out with each other and yeah yeah now, in terms of, and I guess we'll come back to this because, you know, I, I know Paul had a lot to say about uh, Time Stand Still, so I don't know if we want to talk about that now or, or come back to it. But if, if we're going to move on, Open Secrets was the surprise of this album for me. I... Again, I had no clear recollection beyond these first two songs. You could have asked me what was on the rest of this album, and I, I couldn't have told you a thing. Uh, nothing. 
And the first time that Alex breaks into that that little riff of his, I was just like, oh, okay. You checking it out? Oh, yeah, I'm checking it out. I mean, this is just a perfect Rush album for me because it's just melody after melody after melody. And some of those melodies are Alex. It's not all, you know, Getty's vocal. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Yeah, and I don't even know that they needed, you know, somebody like Peter Collins, but damn, I'm glad they went there, you know? No kidding. What, so what, if, what do you do? You know, I was bringing up, I was trying to figure him out, and it was like British frat boy semi-ska mod music and the band was named after a moped. And and it's like, how do you get this guy doing this weird British pop stuff? As as much as I tend to like some of the mod stuff, like how did how did they even know about this guy and how did these Canadians learn about him and how did they get <laughs> together? Just very weird. Um but 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 yeah, it, it really seems that that Peter Collins was that magic that they were looking for. Yeah, seemingly. And, and it's, it's interesting, you know, when they go back to Peter Collins, you know, it's similar yet different because uh, clearly they were starting to, to sort of turn the ship in a different direction. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, before I'm the on Open Secrets, before, before we get too far away from it, yeah, um, it's just uh, you know, want to pull up some of the rhymes here and whatnot. I just, just um, it, it's amazing how well this 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 works. I, I had concerns in our last episode about soundtrack dissonance and, and whether or not uh, Getty and Alex were providing the right music for Neil's lyrics, <laughs> but I, I feel like there is. Uh, consistency congruity in this whole whole album where where some of these messages in the choruses actually get a sincere soundtrack that they deserve um well i guess we all have these feelings we can't leave unreconciled some of them burned on our ceilings some of them learned as a child the things we're concealing will never let us grow time will do its healing you've got to let it go and and, yeah. and, the music, and the music bed behind that is is legitimate. It's not too crazy. It's not too proggy. It's not too anything. It just delivers that really well. So there there are some great quotes um, from from Getty and Alex that maybe speak to that a little bit. Alex has to say it's more the musicality of the song than the lyrical content. For the solo, I think it's the mood. That's created by the music, I suppose, in a way that makes it attached to the lyrics. But it's more the music that provides the trigger for what the solo does. Um, and then Getty has to say that song went through a lot of changes. And by the end of it, we had established this bass riff near the top of it. At the end, we got into this groove when we were in the demo stage that we knew would be fun. So when Neil locked into that groove and went with it, he felt so good that we just let him go. And I just jammed to what he had already put down. Hell yeah. So, you know, clearly there was, you know, there, 
you know, it, it seems that the 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 band clearly connected with this um, on a musical level, and maybe that's what I'm responding to. But I just, ugh. like I said, this this was completely unexpected to me, and it kind of it really carried me in through the rest of this record. Uh, it was it was eye opening for me because I had, like I said, no recollection. That this was in here. I would say the title "Open Secrets" kind of blows, but you know, it's a fantastic song. Um, I, I, I would change the title <laughs> to something more indicative <laughs> of, the, of, of something more indicative of the lyrics and the jam or something. But you know, I don't associate anything with the actual title. But damn, it's really good. Uh, Second Nature, similarly, you ready to hit that one? Yeah, absolutely. Second Nature doesn't really float my canoe all that much. I mean, I, 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 it doesn't bother me, but I don't know that there's anything about it that I go, oh, yeah, this is, I need to listen to this song. Right. Um, relatively speaking, it's a ballad. It, it, it's, you know, they've built up enough steam after that jam and Open Secrets, and they're going to take it down a notch for the crowd. Oh my God! Here you go. There's a line in there. Now I lay me down in dreamland. It is based on an 18th century children's bedtime prayer. More a paraphrase than a quote, really, but it comes from a prayer which was stitched into a sampler above my grandmother's bed. Really? Okay. So, so there you go. And he goes on to say that second nature is conciliatory in its message. If we can't reach perfection in this world, then it Let's at least settle for some degree of improvement. Sometimes we have to accept something less than total victory. Indeed. A song of pragmatism and optimism. Uh, I do like, uh, you know, hook-wise, I say this album's melody after melody. When they say, now I lay me down in dreamland, I, I do melt and I get into that vibe. Uh, he says, you know, I know that perfect's not for real. I thought we might get closer, but I'm ready to make a deal. Um, it's all very melodic. Very, very, works, works very well. Um, yeah, today is different and tomorrow is the same. It's hard to take the world the way that it came. Yeah, it gets a little goofy as, as it goes out. But, you know, it's Neil. It, it, it's a solid Neil. I'm feeling it. Yeah, you know, there, there's really nothing lyrically on this album that, that causes me to, you know, give the RCA dog face. Like, what? Yeah, yeah. But but there are a couple times when it's like, yeah, that didn't really, you know, get me going either. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, we can keep it moving. Now, Prime Mover... And for those of you listening on vinyl, Prime Mover is the end of side A. Oh, you know what? There's a comment from, from Getty that at this point in their career, they're not concerned with the limits of vinyl. And I, I wanted to ask you what that meant. You know, they, they wanted to do 50 minutes. What, 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 I know CDs are around 72 minutes. What is the limit of vinyl? 
So the limit of vinyl is somewhere, you know, it, it's interesting. It's somewhere in the 40s, I believe. And, and it's interesting. I've been thinking about this. You know, it's, it's amazing that we've gone through all that we've gone through and hadn't really contemplated the fact that the magical time limit of 20 minutes, give or take, for prog rock classics was ultimately determined by the capacity of a side of an LP. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you've got people like Rick Wakeman. You got to be careful. You know how much how much rope you give them. So, you know, let's let's go down a rabbit hole for a second. Since you brought up Rick Wakeman, and I'm talking about LPs. One of the LPs that I just recently found, purchased, and listened to over the weekend was Rick Wakeman's Criminal Record. I texted a little bit about this over the weekend. It was phenomenal. And it was recorded in 77, so this is going for the one era. Side one features both uh, Chris Squire and Alan White on all the tracks. And side two is all orchestrated, and it is phenomenal. So, you know, Rick, Rick was feeling the good vibes of 1977, along with uh, with going for the one. There was more than just oh, yeah. that going. 1977 but, is that hockey stick curve leading up to peak herbal, right? <laughs> yeah, with which. Ultimately resulted in Tormato. <laughs> right, right. We we know what happens. We know where that goes. We we do know where that goes. But now there have been quotes on previous albums from Rush where I believe it's mostly Getty that I've seen associated with this, but there was this concern about album content and you know quality over quantity and they always wanted you know their eight or nine songs they were looking for something in the the 36 to, to 40 minute range and you know getty's quoted one time talking about value and yeah so when hold your fire is at the end of the original lp era and like you said they were they were becoming less and less concerned with with that sort of constraint if you will and yeah, so they started to sort of branch out a little bit, but mm. and expand it out. And and I I do think in some cases that didn't always work to their benefit. And I think that's true of a lot of bands. Um, you know, I, I think there is I think it's difficult to get more than fifty five or sixty minutes of, of solid music. Sure, uh, if you think about not just album formats, but even, you know, live sets. Um, you know, a set is generally in that range before a long intermission. Uh, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to keep anyone's uh, attention. And in fact, it occurred to me today that this album really would have been served well with an instrumental. If you go back and you look at the, the Rush catalog, you know, it's really any style of music. I, it's hard just to give the folks hit after hit after hit after hit. And the way that, you know, prog bands deal with that is you get these instrumentals or long prog pack passages or something. 
And if there's anything lacking in this phase of Rush, you're not getting your YYZ, you know? You're not getting your La Via. Yeah. You're not that little breath. You know, not entirely necessary, but uh, uh, it's, just, it's just one way to, to, to capture your audience and keep them and draw them in. Break free of the uh, formula. Well, I, I liked your rabbit hole. So there's there's a lot. If if we go back to to prime movers, now I find prime mover to be. I wrote down a note here as I was listening to it, and it's very cool because Grace and I don't know if she's just you know trying to you know get in my good graces or whatnot. But she seems very appreciative of all this music that I've been playing recently. And she always compliments how good my music is. So we were, yeah, it was cool. I had the kids for dinner tonight. And she is on the kitchen table uh, drawing a beautiful watercolor of a, of a tree on a grassy field. And I had some, some chores that I was sort of doing near and around her. And I said, hey, Grace, can I, you know, can I put on some of my good music? She's like, yes, please do that. So I put on um, I put on side one of Hold Your Fire just to kind of get me in the groove. And she she complimented this album as well. She compliments everything I've put on. I wonder if I put on brain salad surgery, what she would say. But as Prime Mover was was going, I just sort of jotted down the the quick little note, uplifting. Musically, I just I find it, you know, it's like it I think second nature kind of lulls me off a little bit after the, the high of open secrets. I mean, really the first three, it's, it's bang, bang, bang. And then yep. Yep. You know, second nature, you kind of catch your breath and prime mover kind of perked me up a little bit. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm into this. Indeed. Now Indeed. on, on, on rush vault and even on song facts, there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on about the prime mover that uh, quite frankly i don't understand and i don't uh, i'm just not prepared to really go into it i'm i'm seeing aristotle and plato i'm seeing connections to clockwork angels and that whole story there's a lot going on here yeah i prefer just to take the lyrics and and face value it did occur to me to do the reading, but there's enough to work with off of these lyrics. And quite frankly, I think there is a slight misdirection here. Um, They went long form when they could have gone pop. Uh, I think from the point of ignition to the final drive, the point of the journey is not to arrive. Anything can happen. You know, it's 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 poppy they they do it twice they probably could have done it three times almost too many words going on here do you, do you know what i'm saying i do know what you're saying yeah it, it's oh is there a video for prime mover i'm i'm afraid i'm afraid of that video oh i'm sorry it's not it's not prime mover it's it's lock and key i, I moved ahead sorry okay. um yeah, I, I totally get what you're saying, and and now that you mention it, the whole the point the whole point of the journey is not to arrive thing. It it, it kind of strikes me as one of those weird nihilisms. 
Uh, it's a guy who cycles on different continents and rides motorcycles. So it it's probably genuine. It's probably what he does. Yeah, and and yeah, I mean, I, I get that. It's just it's you know, it's it's such a it it seems to me to be a uniquely Neil way to say it. He does have his own sort of of way of expressing his ideas. I think at this point, and you know, one of the things. I, you know, I've, I've I've sort of been been giving Neil some grief over the last couple episodes for for the lyrical content, even though on the whole it's been it's been pretty solid. And the other thing that I learned over the weekend is all of my my pent up frustration with Neil Peart lyrics is reserved for the second half of Test for Echo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and 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 really what I'm what I find is and especially again looking at, at some of these these quotes and, and things that have been said about it, you know, I've I've found myself kind of impressed with I mean clearly whether you like some of the lyrics or the messages or if sometimes he goes a little bit less subtle than others, it, it seems obvious that Neil puts a lot of effort into these lyrics, and I can I can totally respect that. I wonder if he sits down with his diary or his notebook and reads the lyrics in the rhythm that he imagines. Or if he just simply slides pages under the door. It's like, you know, they, they've got this little room and, and Getty and Alex are in there and they're, you know, they, they've got a bottle of wine or they're doing bong hits and like, like Neil just slides the paper under the door and, they, and hopes that uh, they, they, they pick it up. Or, or does he march in there with his big, booming drummer voice and eloquently recite Poetry. So, <laughs> you know, he, 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 he may have to, you know, deliver that rhythm and sell them on these stories and explain what they mean. There, there may be that, that interaction. You think? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it, it's fascinating how all of that kind of comes together. And, you know, it, I've often wondered how that how that connection occurs when you have someone writing lyrics and someone else writing and, and, you know, the music and singing the melody, you know, that I've always, you know, the, the, probably the most famous example is the, the Bernie Taupin and Elton John connection, right? Sure. How, how do you, how does that connection occur in what to the end user seems such a seamless fashion? Uh, I think that's that's interesting to me. Indeed, indeed. I, I, yeah, I wish I wish uh, Paul was here and the other guys because we came from a tradition where, you know, typically when one of us got a bug, it was going to be the lyrics and the music together. We'd we'd coach each other and we'd collaborate, but pretty much, you know, one guy would get locked in to all the parts well and and if i may say uh, speaking as an observer during that time period 
that often seemed to occur because when parts were given to other people, the composer was often displeased with the results of that. <laughs> it takes a lot of trust, yeah. And just said, fuck it, I'll do it myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, th I think you need some level of Canadian optimism to pull off that level of trust. Yeah, maybe. And, 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 and the point of my journey was to arrive. I think that was my problem. So, <laughs> well, see, if you'd paid more attention to Neil, you would have known. I, I, I really should have. I really should have. So All now right. we, can, we, can, we can flip the record over and go into Lock and Key, which is a surprisingly pleasant little song. And, and I say surprisingly pleasant because... It's one of those things when I'm listening to this, at least when I first started, I wanted to look past Lock and Key because I knew what was next. And Lock and Key managed to sort of capture my attention a little bit. Well, the intro. Um, it now, I don't know if that's the way they wrote it or if that's the brilliance of Peter Collins putting the hook at the beginning, but that's really nice work. You know? So according to bass player Getty Lee, the music was written simultaneously with the lyrics, and they fit together like a glove without any forethought. So, you know, apparently this was one of those songs that just kind of fell together. Thank now, goodness. I, yeah, I don't know about, you know, putting the hook up front. You know, is, is that a, a producer, you know, call, or, you know, did, did the band say, hey, you know, it would be cool? I don't know. Yeah, it's really good. And and the melodies, again, it just... We, we say at this period, Getty has so learned to sing. His, his oh, voice, yeah. Yep. His, his voice is singing in all of its chambers and all of its capacity and all of its control. And he's delivering melodies and stories. It's... It, it's just it's so good. It's so good. And, and, and the, the live shows during that period were probably even more consistent than when he had the extra range when he was young. I think it's just a matter of, you know, maturity and control. He, he, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, clearly he had sort of a raw ability when he was younger, but I don't know that he knew how to like you said, control that in, in any way, shape, or form. And and now he's still using, you know, uh, the, the full breadth of, of range, but it's, you know, you're not climbing the walls like I was with 2112. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm pulling up the video. I can't stop myself. You got me going down this road here. Oh dear, I, I haven't looked. I haven't looked at it myself, so I'm not quite sure what it what it looks like. But Getty's got that that do that that late '80s do that he's got going on. I see. Now yeah. is he playing? Is is he playing the wall in this video? It I, this is weird. It's a little bit of time stands still with a darker studio, and they're merging it with. 99 luffed balloons, but they're not balloons. They're, they're, they're bouncy balls. Bouncy balls. Okay. They're being juggled. Yes. 
Yes. So while you're while you're watching that, I've got a an extensive uh, quote from Getty Lee here. Uh, apparently, he used a five string on this track, which he talked about in 1988. And I'll cut through the the first part of this, but he's talking about you know. Um, he, he, you know, he started out on the Rick and it had a certain sound. Then he moved to a Steinberger, which gave him a totally different sound. And the top end didn't range as high and twangy, and the bottom end was quite a different shade. I liked it a lot and used it on stage and on the Greatest Under Pressure album. But on Power Windows, I got introduced to the wall bass. Um, I use that bass on Hold Your Fire, and I'm very pleased with the results and its flexibility. I use a four-string most of the time, but on lock and key, it was a five-string that made with an extra low B. I find that low string really means more today because we're living in the world of synthesizers that go lower than basses ever went before. So that's kind of an interesting perspective. Oh, I wish I would have had that resource. I, I, I know I, I had this argument in a bar once with somebody. You know, you get that one guy telling you that. <laughs> No bass player needs more than four strings. <laughs> I disagree wholeheartedly. I think bass players should have as many strings as they want. Good, good, good. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating watching this video because they've they've both changed instruments. You know, Alex has this uh, triangular head. It's looking like a Charvel off, off the top of my head. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, it, it's got that metal vibe um yeah de definitely a different look for them changing instruments on this man i got well okay this video is way better than uh time stand still well that's not a high bar but i'll have to i'll have to watch it afterwards <laughs> <laughs> So, right. you know, lock and key, you know, certainly I, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a great, it's, it's a wonderful song, but here again, even now when we're talking about it, all I want to do is talk about mission and I want to, I've well, been waiting, okay, okay, I've been waiting but, for weeks. Um, uh, uh, um, in the liner notes, uh, Neil's very straightforward about the theme of time in the first two songs evolves into a theme of instinct. And, you know, you, you, you get the uh, killer instinct and lock and key. So uh, very important uh, thematically. The album, and I, I, the mel with the melody, you know, they, they, they just kind of nail it and keep... I agree, I agree. Um, at this point, I'm very eager to hear Mission. Yeah, and, and but but quickly, since you got me on this instinct thing, so now, you know, now Neil is, you know, when, you, when you talk about hold your fire, which is essentially going against, presumably, your instinct. So, you know, Neil's sort of building on to the whole theme of, of, the, of the record at this point. Fascinating. I love how that happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But but let's uh, let's talk mission because Ken, you've been listening to mission for weeks and yes. presumably an awful lot. It's not like you listen to it once or twice. <laughs> I have the impression 
I have the impression that, that you have probably logged hours with just this song <laughs> since we started this Rush segment. Oh, if I could, if I could. Um, yeah, I don't know what it is about Mission. And it just rings in my head after I... Um, it, it, it touches on uh, instinct. I wish I had that instinct. I wish I had that drive. But it, it, it's definitely not as uh, contentious as the killer instinct. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, man, it's just a beautiful song. And he delivers it again with that controlled vocal style vibrato that I so respect at this point in his career. And the keyboard sounds are perfectly cheesy. Cheesy in the way that I need them to be. You know, they kind of bring me in and embrace me in the good 80s slash 90s way. I just, I just think they, they hit the nail on the head with this one. So you had you had made mention early on uh, that it was a perfect production, I believe you said, or something to that effect. So this is this is basically what you're describing right now. Just the fact that you know even the 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 appropriately cheesy keyboards, um, you know, clearly this is I would say the most slick production on this already slick album. Sure. You know? Sure. It, I mean, it, it kind of... If, if you're going to accuse Rush of making, you know, their invisible touch, this song, I think, is probably about a, as close as you're going to get to that. I can live with that. I can live with that. Well, yeah, because... And, and the reason I think you can live with that, and, and we've talked about this before, because I don't mean to throw shade at invisible touch in any way, shape, or form... Because, again, when you have these very accomplished musicians, if they want to make what amounts to a pop song, they can do so very, very well. That's my opinion. Bravo. As well they should. Now, an interesting quote that I have here from Alex in regard to Mission Alex's mission came out a lot better than I thought it would. It had gone through quite a few changes since its inception, and it ended up being a much better song than it started out. One can only wonder how it started out, and and this is where you know, and I you know I don't maybe they do have extra stuff that they put on these 40th anniversary reissues or whatnot, but we've we've talked previously how. You know, Rush have, have claimed in the past that there's nothing in the vault, nothing to hear that we haven't already heard. Um, but when you think about the the story and the relationship with the owner of a Lonely Heart demo, for, for instance, that eventually we're going to get to talk about and the influence <laughs> Trevor Horn had on that song, um, you know, I, I I would be interested in having seen this. In terms of the the production and reaching this, you know, quote-unquote perfection at this level. We can view it as the arc from moving pictures through signals, grace under pressure. And I guess you don't get an omelet without 
breaking eggs. And to me, this is the production omelet. Really? Okay. They, 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 they got a couple of wacky sounds with their keyboards, particularly things that remind me of overbright, poppy, uh, Roland sounds and Yamaha DX7 sounds. And, you know, that's still all here, but they've like molded it into where it needs to be. It's, okay. Uh, yeah. The programming was part of the composition. At this stage, Getty's using a digital performer and he's getting all his ideas in the computer and he's demonstrating the computer for for Neil at the at the you know the first unveiling of the lyrics. And uh, then along comes Alex and he's got a bunch of uh, demos and a drum machine apparently. So while Neil goes off to perfect more of his lyrics. Alex is sitting there tapping away, you know, with some drum stuff. And they had so much technology in the writing process that it gelled together in the recording process. Whereas I think maybe earlier, you know, in Signals, it was like, oh, quick, do a bunch of technology because we're in the studio. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, here again, I think, especially when you consider where they go from here into Presto, this almost becomes sort of the culmination of 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 this this portion of their of their songwriting. And and maybe in a, in a lot of ways, Mission becomes the highest expression of that. Fantastic. Why not? So after mission, we go to turn the page, and I've got to be honest, you know, the, the back half of this album after mission, I, I kind of check out a little bit. I I paid a lot of attention to Tai Shan simply because of some of the conversations we had been having around that, and Tom's interesting factoid, which we have to share with everyone um, regarding Tai Shan. But if it wasn't for that. I don't know that I would have paid Taishan any more attention than I ever had before. And, you know, at, at this point, I'm pretty much satisfied with Mission. And I don't even know that I need the rest of these last three songs on here. Yeah, I, I feel it's the same problem that we get in, you know, in the previous album. It's, it's just, you know, near the end, even if it's good, it just doesn't necessarily feel right. It's like we have so many good melodies in our head. Don't try to sell us on another melody. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so that's where I, 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 I could go for a groove or an instrumental or something proggy or something weird just to yeah. give the brain that space. Right. Just, just to, just to change the palette up a little bit. And, you know, I think if you're talking about that, you know, the, the melodies here, are not as good as the other melodies we've already heard. Yeah. Yeah. Turn the page, you know, it's a little canned maybe. It, it, it's, it's more of just a fantastic bass riff. He's doing the... Yeah. 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 You know, I'd, lo I'd, lo I'd love to hear it just, you know, 
pick out the vocals. Let me hear what they're jamming on. It might be perfect that way. You know, one of the things that we haven't really talked about, and we, we I'm hoping you've got something in the Rototom section to talk about because you promised us that we could talk Rototoms. <laughs> but in, in this in this series of albums, and I, and I I didn't really go back beyond that to to think about this, but certainly I noticed in this album, you know, Neil is behaving much more like a quote-unquote normal drummer in terms of just, you know, playing a beat. Now, he he embellishes those beats better than most, but he's not nearly as unusual or showy now than he was on a moving pictures or something like that, right? Okay. Uh, yeah, he, he he's not... Um, the innovator that we know him to be. He, he, you know, he he clearly worked for that level of prestige, and he he earned every ounce of it. And he probably could, you know, do more of it. But by this stage in his career, I think he's just so confident in who he is. He's he's. He's grooving more and feeling okay about it without complicating it. Yeah. And, and, and that's, you know, it's, it's interesting. Because one of the things, you know, when you're talking about the, the, the bass groove on, on Turn the Page, you know, one of the things that I used to, you know, or I still really enjoy, when one of the guys was, you know, doing something, you, you, could, you could pick out and follow the other guys. And, and it was usually just as interesting. And I don't know that that really happens anymore on this album. Well said. And that's not, you know, it's 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 an embarrassment of riches situation where you know when they did that in in what I'll call the the sort of middle period, you know, you became so spoiled with it, and they gave you so much that was so good, you know. It, if they maybe if they tried to continue to do it, it would be seen as merely derivative. Um, but yeah, I just that's a, just an observation that I had. Um, Tai Shen. Let's is, talk about Tai Shen. It, 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 it was um, admittedly um, new ground for Neil. Uh, he did one of his cycling trips through China and wanted to capture his experience in this track and use some different techniques. So he came up with a, a ballad or a piece of stillness that doesn't really fit the Rush catalog. Right. Now, um, if I pull up Tom's factoid, Tom says, from a classic rock magazine interview, um, Getty Lee is quoted in saying that Hold Your Fire's Tai Shan is his least favorite song. Getty goes on to say, it just seems like an error. It is often quoted by both Alex and Getty as their least favorite Rush song. Getty said it was a personal thing for Neil, but it just didn't work for us as a song. Tom then goes on to talk about his own feelings. This so happens to be my favorite song on the album. The melody is beautiful, and I find it quite emotional and a refreshing change of pace for the band. I'm with Tom. Uh, absolutely. You know, I, 
and, and I hadn't seen this particular quote. Tom had alluded to it in conversations we've had before. And again, I, I, I was sort of tuned in to Tai Shan because I knew there was sort of some, some controversies surrounding it. And I wanted to, to sort of be able to, to speak to that. And, and Tai Shan is clearly different. Um, and I wondered at the time, you know, what exactly about it made Getty not like it, but it, it really, it, the melody is beautiful. I wonder a little bit, I, I have, I personally get the impression that Alex wasn't 100% certain what to do here. And he sort of, you know, gave it the old college try. And I think he probably got pretty close, but you know, it, it, it's Rush trying to be Kitaro, which, you know, they're not, that's not necessarily in their DNA, right? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, uh, I, it was my study music uh, around the same time, actually. Uh, K-I-T-A-R-O, the um, Japanese instrumentalist of the early, uh, what would you call that? Uh, Moby period? <laughs> <sighs> yeah, and, and, you know, maybe I'm... Uh, you know, we've got a song about China and I'm invoking a, a Japanese instrumentalist, which is probably, I don't know, maybe that's a, a bad thing to do. But no, it's perfectly fair game. If they want to go into, uh, you know, pseudo Asian styles, they're open themselves up to all this. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, so like I said, I, I see where they're going and, and I do. I find the the melody and I find the lyrics to be evocative. I I find that you know Neil and, and Getty are able to create the images in my mind that I think they're going for, which you know I, it's it's clearly very effective in that regard. And if again, if no one had told me that, that there was some you know Getty didn't like it or. I, I, I wonder if I would have picked up on this, but having paid that much attention to it, I find I quite enjoy it. Yeah, it, it, it really grew on me. Um, didn't expect it, but loved it. It's not bad at all. Um, we had some um, more abrasive text messaging in regards to this song. We, we did. Um, Jay and Colby were not fans, as I recall. Nope. So let me see if I can find that. <laughs> uh, oh boy. Um, well, Kobe said, I'm surprised of how fond I've become of open secrets too. Uh, I think agreeing with Paul. And then he said, and I like Tai Shan. Getty is misinformed. So we, 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 we're leaning towards a lot of, um, a lot of votes for Tai Shan. So before we get too deep into the uh, into the text stream here, uh, you know, I, I don't have anything else about Tai Shan. Uh, like I said, I I do find it to be beautiful, and you know, I don't see what all the fuss is about. I like the, I like the the uh, backbeat. Um, boom, 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 and he's doing like a little backbeat without it being reggae. So, right, 
that 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 must have been one of those little techniques he was trying to pull off. He wanted to get into that little busy beat and then uh, break out into a halftime Asian woodblock thing. And he he he, he got it. He he mastered it. Well, and and you know, I think you know this this sort of speaks to you know that that level of mastery that we talked about and. Yeah, so if, if Neil wants to try something that's maybe a little out of the box, who better? Perfect. And then um, then the album finishes up with High Water, and again, I, I, I have no strong response either way here. I don't... I, I, I just literally don't have any strong feelings about this other than, you know, I wish the album had ended at Mission. <laughs> Right, right. Well, Colby said that this is one of his, his, his favorite Rush outros or one of his favorite closers when the water takes you home. You know, I'm not catching any time references any in here. I'm not catching any instinct or killer instinct. Uh, not a lot of conflict. I, I guess they really just wanted to end as peacefully as, as possible. I mentioned having seen these uh, many of these songs, I guess, Time Stand Still, Force 10, and a few others on the Presto Tour. And I, th I thought it translated really well into their live show. It's just a great era for people playing, you know, human instruments over top of computers. And you could say that, uh, you know, maybe the best was Peter Gabriel. Or you could go with Tears for Fears. You could go with uh, Invisible Touch from Genesis. But this was when all that, you know, clunky, jerky computer stuff started to feel a little bit human. Yeah, and, and you know, maybe part of that has to do with, you know, not only the, the musicians, but obviously, you know, you had some of these producers that were coming in and, and knew how to blend all that together. One question that I, I have, you know, as I've been thinking about this and, and I, I can't decide where I think this, this comes from or where this idea sort of points to, but it has something to do with the idea of in, in this span of time, late eighties into the early nineties, when you had, you know, these, these super groups, um, you know, groups that just exploded beyond, um, any particular genre crossed over every barrier that there was, you know, and, and obviously this album as noted in the intro didn't necessarily perform as well, but, but rush was clearly a huge draw at this point. You've got band, you mentioned U two and the Joshua tree, which just was everywhere. You yep. had, you had Genesis, you had the police, you had, um, you know, Peter Gabriel, you had uh, Def Leppard with, with hysteria, just blowing everything out of proportion. And, and each one of these bands, you know, in, when that happened to them, they almost, they almost existed outside of any specific genre, right? I mean, there were aspects to where, came from because they each came from different areas but but this these these mega super crossover universally accepted albums blurred so many lines across the board now what what i've been trying to figure out is what what drove that was 
was that you know the the music industry knowing what you know sort of forcing bands into a a, a uniform lack of identity was it that these bands were were also accomplished that they were able to literally operate outside the rules um you know was it was it the production you know techniques of the time created this sort of you know uniform identity I, i've been trying to figure out what caused that and and what was that indicative of and and i i each one of those options seems equally plausible to me, so I can't really figure it out. But I, I've been literally thinking about that for a couple of weeks now. Wow. Um, uh, it, it really is the melting pot of, of, of different sounds, musical styles, and they, they picked... Peter Collins or Peter Collins somehow found them for a reason. And it, 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 it I found it very compelling that, that he came from what I described as this mod ska stuff. And I'm just going to play a quick sample. Yeah. That's the Lombradas with, with, with page three. So Peter Collins comes from that experience and he's going to hang out with these prog rock boys and make them palatable. And you get that supergroup kind of sound. You get that. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. I, I just, I, I find it interesting. So, you know, maybe we can just put that out there and let that gestate, but I, I haven't quite completed that theory, but that's what I'm working on. Indeed. Indeed. We'll, we'll have plenty of time. To, to, to get to that, uh, I, I think we, we might be able to put all the words together, you know, when we do Genesis. Yeah, I think I think Genesis will get us a long way uh, to that. Can't wait to get there. But we do have to get through uh, through Rush first. And I'm, I'm actually looking very forward to the rest of the Rush catalog. I was kind of dreading once we got past uh, certainly Presto, maybe Counterparts, but... You know, having spent some time with the most of the rest of the catalog, um, I, I'm I'm very anxious to get there, but I am anxious to get through it and get on to Genesis as well. But let's let's quickly kind of go through some of the input that we had from our friends, just so they can be uh, represented here tonight. So at the top of the list, Paul indicated that Force Ten, Time Stand Still, and Mission are three of his all-time favorites. For good reason. Yeah. He goes on to quote Force 10. Paul Indeed. then goes on to quote Time Stand Still some more. A song that gets more rich with the age and experience. I can actually fully appreciate lines like children growing up, old friends growing older, experience slips away. I think we can all appreciate that being as old as we are. Right. Then Paul, Paul says, I remember discussing this song with Colby, how a man as successful and accomplished as Pierre could reference an actor, an architect, an author with the words, I wish I had their dreams. Amazing. Paul goes on to say that he's also enjoyed Turn the Page and yes, even Second Nature. But somehow the album outside of the big three I mentioned has become a distant second to its counterpart, Power Windows. Still a terrific album with big, delicious sounds. 
Yummy. Colby then chimes in, letting us know that his top three are Force 10 and Time Stand Still. I guess that's his top two, of course. And he says, I'm surprised how fond I've become of Open Secrets, which you already talked about, and he likes Tai Shan. And then he goes on to say, High Water is one of his favorite closers. Love the word painting with the keyboard bubbles. Yeah, what are keyboard bubbles? I, I don't know. I, I wanted to listen to it, but uh, I had the kids and I didn't get a chance to do that. So I will go back and, and uh, investigate High Water after we're done here this evening. Hmm. Paul indicates he's never been fond of the last two songs. They just never felt complete to him. But he... Uh, <laughs> I'm going I'm I'm to quote him directly here. This is Paul talking. But I like Tai Shan way better than some of the shit on Roll the Bones. He goes there. He says it. He says it. So Roll the Bones is... I, I think we're going to have probably very interesting conversations on certainly Roll the Bones... Um, Test for Echo is likely to be just a fun shred fest. And then I think Vapor Trails is going to be very fascinating. Very fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Vapor Trails was my punching bag in a previous episode. So. Uh, I, I couldn't even listen to it. I, I tried. I couldn't get through it. But Colby says he thinks it's one of their best albums. So I can't wait to hear why he thinks that because I don't understand it. Yep. Okay. Now we get into some quick little factoids. So apparently they racked up a big bar tab in Montserrat while Alex did overdubs or something like that. Colby says he read it in a book. Well, well, we, we, we promised we'd mention you know, the effect of all this, um, travel, you know, they picked so many different locations, you know, a couple across the pond and one in the Caribbean. And then they returned to Toronto to be with the little dirty people in the city streets. So, you yeah. know, they, 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 they had their elitist rock star recording in the exotic, you know, locations. Although Brit, Britain was cold, they said, and, and they were... You know, very drafty and, and making the best of a tough situation. But nonetheless, you know, uh, you, 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 you talk the embarrassment of riches and, you know, how many bands, you know, I, I've heard of, you know, Iron Maiden recording a Nassau in the Bahamas. But how many bands need four different cities? Yeah, you know? exactly. Right, right, right. To make to make an album. And in this day and age, I don't think that's part of the business model. But 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 then they they, they pulled it off. And well, they, in, uh, in, in, in this day and age, people don't even leave their own house. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Time stands still. Yeah. How about, yeah. How about the cost of doing business somehow manages stand still? Uh, so they uh, uh, apparently, yeah, you know, found some. Oh, I didn't even mention Paris, but but yeah, they they, they uh, uh, did 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 have fine food and drink on this journey, including in Montserrat, and uh, uh, I suppose these influences do you know brighten the music and give it that you know feeling of uh, spaciousness. I do yeah. I do appreciate some of that. So uh, I think that pretty much covers it um at that point there was there was a 
some sort of banter back and forth about us, the music fans, paying for their wonderful world vacations, um, which (laughs) it it is what it is. But, you know, it's it's unfortunate that our comrades were not able to join us tonight. As we've mentioned, um, my understanding is Colby is this was his gateway album. He is um, famously in, in our group known to be associated with hold your fire um paul seems to have you know perhaps not appreciated it as much as he did in his younger days and tom was surprisingly on board i i've been i've been surprised by tom's reaction to some of this this era of the the rush albums um i I can't quite figure tom out sometimes but that's what makes him so wonderful indeed Indeed. Um, not much from Jay on this. Um, I guess, you know, a few Rototoms here and there weren't enough to uh, spark his interest. Uh, I certainly love the Rototoms. I, I love the Rototoms. Um, where is it that, what, because uh, Jay chimed in and he said he didn't like anything past Power Windows. Is that what he said? You know, it's too bad. This is, this is just 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 power windows perfected but uh, you know to each his own um the best rototoms might be big money and this is this this just might be the the watered down version to some people <laughs> i don't know well ken as i suspected there was no problem with just two of us Filling yes. as much time as a Palaver episode usually takes. <laughs> it looks like this episode is probably going to clock in right at about 90 minutes. Um, which wow. is, is, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's our thing, man. That's what we do. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so I, I think, uh, you know, in, I, I hope that our, our colleagues think we have, have done this album properly. And if not, we will, we can certainly provide them some, uh, some, some floor time in a future episode to, uh, to give their thoughts on things we may have missed. Although I think we covered it pretty darn well. Uh, Yeah. I hope we captured some of the innocence and the beauty and the art in this album. It's the antithesis of the um, alter ego. It's not, the rock world it's not the blues world it's not the big guitar world it, it's none of that stuff that came before it it's not proggy it's it's a um, kind of a more wholesome sincere direct view of the world absolutely and and very very enjoyable now obviously you know we have from here we're going to move into into the rupert hein era and discuss Presto and Roll the Bones coming up, and then Peter Collins will eventually come back for for counterparts, which is is fascinating. So I look forward to all of that. And Ken, as always, I thank you for coming along for the journey. And we'll see you next time, my friend. Wonderful.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Progressive Palaver. We hope you've enjoyed this this uh, discussion of Russia's Hold Your Fire. This was fun doing it with, uh, with just Ken and I, and we look forward to having the full crew, or at least more of the crew, back next episode as we continue to discuss Rush with Presto. As always, you can reach out to us, and we encourage you to do so through the major forms of social media. That would be Instagram, Facebook, and... Uh, Twitter. We are at Progpala, P-R-O-G-P-E-A-L-A on all of those. You can also search for Progressive Palaver and you should find us. You can email us if you're into that sort of thing. We are progpala at gmail.com and Progressive Palaver is as always available on both iTunes and Google Play for download and subscription and we are hosted on SoundCloud if you'd like to listen to us there as well. So we look forward to the next time and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.